Welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have an atta and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In this episode, I'm checking back in with journalist Natalie Morris. When we last spoke in JSIP episode 41, Natalie was working at the Metro, but she is now taking the plunge to go freelance and has written her first book, Mixed Slash Other, since then, so she has been very, very busy. I read the book cover to cover when it came out, so we won't be going as in-depth on the book as I usually would in this podcast, but we will definitely cover some of its key themes through a mental health lens. Unfortunately, since we last spoke, Natalie has also lost her father, Tony, a beloved broadcaster and journalist in his own right, to cancer in August 2020. We discussed that journey of grief she has gone on, her sister and her mum have gone on since his passing, how she has articulated this through her writing, and we celebrate the brilliant, loving and larger-than-life character her dad was to so many people, including Natalie. So this is how part two of my check-in with Natalie Morris went. Nat, welcome back to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for taking the time to let me check back in with you. The podcast has come a very, very long way since we last chatted. You can actually see my face this time when we are recording. <laughs> and uh, the kit the kit is a lot better than it was when I was yeah. doing it the first time. How are you, mate? How was Christmas? How was your new year? I am great. Thank you so much for having me back. What a joy to be back on this amazing podcast. And yeah, like you say, I'm loving the fact that I can see you and <laughs> you've stepped up with the tech. Like, this is great. <laughs> it's, it's, it's gross. It's gross. But no, I'm great. I've had a great Christmas, like a bit too good in that I'm like very not ready for the world. Like I don't mm-hmm. have any like New Year drive, like not a shred of it for some reason. I'm just like, I, I just don't have that like, yeah, let's let's go get it. Let's go get this bread. Absolutely not. I just want to like- you just chill be, vibes. I just yeah, want to be cozy continue. in my yeah, house yeah, and like yeah. we chill at all times. Yeah. So I want to carry that, carry that into 2023 somehow. Still earn some money. I don't know if, I, if those two things are compatible, but <laughs> I'm going to try. <laughs> yeah, we can try, mate. We can try. Yeah. You've had so many amazing highs since we last spoke. You've also had some really difficult moments too. So I really want to explore all of these in tandem mm. and holistically. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? I'm so ready. Born ready. Let's do it. Let's pick up where we left off from your last episode, pal, and talk about what's happened in your journalism journey since we Mm. spoke. So tell the listeners what you've gotten up to and what you've learned along the way and this part of your journey to where you are today. Well, yeah, essentially my whole career has taken another big turn in that I've gone freelance in the last six months so yeah I've been I've been freelancing for six months it's been a wild interesting fascinating journey a huge shift in how I approach work and journalism and just my life like my work-life balance it's totally different so I, I left my job at Metro six months ago without another job to go to which was terrifying to say the least you know, people talk about taking that leap and needing to have those moments where you're just brave in your career. And 
it got to the point where I was like, I need something to change. I think it was a culmination of post-pandemic, a grief kind of reaction as well that I know Mm -hmm. we're going to get onto, but just wanting to have a kind of fundamental change in the way I kind of organize my life. And obviously our work and our career is such a fundamental part of our lives and and the shape of it, because simply because we spend so much time at work, working, doing our jobs. And I was like, I can't give this amount of time to a company anymore to Mm. be at an office for an arbitrary amount of time Mm -hmm. in their set hours to Mm -hmm. do the set things that other people want me to do. And I wasn't getting enough out of it anymore. I did for a long time. I got loads out of it. I learned loads. I managed to do a lot of work that I was really proud of at the Metro and at ITV and working for other newsrooms before that. I learned a lot from doing that, but I got to a point where I realized to really, I don't know, get to the next level with my career and and to make the impact that I really want to make, I had to branch out on my own and I had to get away from the expectations that these companies had for me and Mm. have that true autonomy where I'm genuinely accountable for myself for my own work and I'm making the work that I want to do and that Mm. nobody else is telling me to do in a way that I want to do it as well because that's one of the hardest things about working in a newsroom is that other constraints that you're under in terms of other people are telling you what the stories are which stories are more important than others how you need Mm -hmm. to write those stories and I just wanted to get away from that and have Mm. have a bit more freedom so yeah it's been wild it's been a journey in terms of figuring out what that looks like as in not getting up and going to an office in the morning because that's been so much of my life all of my adult life I've done that Mm. and now all of a sudden that's gone so it's Mm. been weird (laughs) well speaking of exploring that what did you want to explore or discover about yourself or the issues that you wanted to cover through going freelance and what have been the challenges because being your own boss definitely is a big challenge for anyone mm. it's definitely not for everyone mm. so has it taught you maybe a great level of proactiveness as well yeah massively I think I've always been a proactive person in terms of my career I've always been really driven and hardworking essentially which makes me sound like I'm just spewing my LinkedIn CV here but like I feel like I like to like work really hard but I've realized that my focus wasn't always in the right place. So I think it was very much about productivity and busyness and like feeling like I was filling my days with loads and loads of stuff. So for me, like getting up really early, being at the office, staying late at the office, putting in those hours felt like me working really hard, being really productive, being really good at my job. That was kind of how I managed it in my head. So to have all of those kind of structures stripped away, you're then left with okay, what am I actually doing? What do I actually like about this job? What constitutes a good day for me? What constitutes a day where I've achieved things beyond the fact that I stayed really late or I worked this amount of hours this week? And that's been a real revelation in terms of, I don't know, detaching myself from the shackles of productivity, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Feeling as though the more you're working, the better that work is. And I've realized that isn't the case at all. I don't Mm -hmm. have to be working every hour of the day in order to be doing my job well actually the opposite can be true and giving myself more time to think and to read and Mm. to engage with the topics I actually care about um there's a constant clock you spoke about it as being yeah yeah exactly exactly you're just always always busy and always trying to fill those hours when if you can step away from that it actually I found that it's made me a better journalist it's made me Mm -hmm. more curious it's given me the space to actually dig deeper into the topics that I want to work on rather than just 
churning things out because I feel like I need to do that in order to justify my role and to justify my position as a journalist so it's made me a better journalist but it's also really hard because you know if you don't have a reason to get up in the morning and go somewhere you're a bit like what is my day what does my day look like and it's down to me to make something of my day of my week of my month it's down to me to figure out how much I'm going to earn this month to make sure I'm going to be able to pay my mortgage pay my bills like that's a whole new thing that I've never had to really worry about because I know I'm always getting a paycheck at the end of the month so now I'm like okay how much am I getting for every day that I'm working and that's a that's a whole new challenge but I have enjoyed it and it's taught me a lot about learning to trust the process of my work and if that means some days are quieter some days are just answering a couple of emails some days I'm just reading other people's work and being inspired and I used to really think that wasn't good enough and I think well that's a waste of a day or that's lazy or that's not enough work but now I'm realizing that it's such a balancing act and you have mm-hmm. to be able to to work like a maniac on some days and then other days you're going to take it easier and recharge essentially so you can go again. Before we talk about your book I want to just want to talk about one other positive which might seem perhaps trivial or insignificant to some people but was actually quite important for you and it was escaping the quote-unquote Sunday scaries when you went freelance so how has that been in sort of relieving yourself of that anxiety on a Sunday afternoon or evening it's wild how instantaneous it was I noticed it straight away like literally quit my job and then the next Sunday I was like oh like I am calm and I (laughs) and I was just I was also like just a much nicer person to be around like my boyfriend will attest to this like I was a nightmare on a Sunday because I'd be so stressed and I'd think okay I've got work tomorrow. You know, you have in a, in a working week, you have two days at the weekend to try and do everything, to try and rest, socialize, do all your chores. Also, you're supposed to be like being creative, doing your side hustles, like trying to fulfill yourself as a person in every way possible in two days. And it isn't physically possible. So I used to be just constantly chasing this endless impossible to-do list that I was never ever ever going to get to the end of and Sunday kind of encapsulated that fear and that realization that I haven't had enough time either I haven't had enough rest or I haven't seen my friends or I haven't cleaned the house so no matter what I did at the weekend there was always some element of my life where I felt guilt where I felt I haven't done enough I haven't Mm. achieved enough and now you're thrown back into the week and you're back at work and you've got no time and no energy to catch up so you're constantly playing catch up on your whole life. And I think that made me just like low level, stressed out constantly. Permanently. Yeah, Permanently. Yeah, just yeah. all the time. It's just not sustainable. Something's going to break. Yeah, something's yeah, going to break. Yeah, it's not sustainable. It? Yeah, you yeah, can't yeah. do that forever. And I think that was the point where I was like, I actually need to change this because I'm anxious. I can feel it. I'm not sleeping well on the Sunday. I don't want to eat. Like I get headaches. I was like, this is physically affecting me because I'm stressed about going to my job. And I didn't have the most stressful job. And I enjoyed my job. And even then I would feel stressed about it and like physically anxious and worried about the working week and what was ahead of me. And I was like, I don't want to do this for the next 30 years. Like my body will not be able to take it. Like I will get ill. It will make me look haggard. (laughs) And I don't want that. I want to be, I want to be healthy and I want to feel good Um, and I think you know so many things have happened over the last few years that have made me realize that that's what I need to prioritize I need to prioritize my health my mental health I need to prioritize my relationships 
I need to prioritize having nice times with my friends and my boyfriend and my family over this kind of pressure of achieving things in my career and feeling like I'm doing a good job Monday to Friday for this company, this faceless company who who don't actually care about me. So I think that was the shift where I was like, do you know what? Let me just work for myself for a bit. It doesn't have to be forever. I can go back. But for right now, this is what I needed. I needed to change. I need to break away from that cycle because Mm. after, you know, it's been what, 12, 13 years now since I graduated and I've been doing this nonstop. And it was like, I can't do this for my whole life. There has Mm. to be another way. So I thought I'd explore that. And so far, it's good. I'm liking it. It's good. The other and the main big part of your journalism journey we're going to discuss here, mate, is your book. Now, unfortunately, for the purposes of the podcast, I read it when it came out, so <laughs> I, uh, I, I got all—I took it all in then, and I had to yeah. go, go back and. We're, so we're going to explore some of the key themes. We're not going to go as deep a dive as I normally do on this podcast, because for the purposes of time, that probably works out well. So, your brilliant book, Mixed Other: Explorations of Multiraciality in Modern Britain, came out in April 2021. So, mm-hmm. firstly, how did it come about? And tell me about the themes you explored through a mental health lens. So it came about. Actually, I was approached to do it oh, by an what editor. a privilege. I know. I was like, <laughs> if I'm getting getting headhunted to like write a Ugh. book, I was like, I didn't even know that happened, but apparently it does. <laughs> um, so I was writing at Metro at the time, I was writing a column about people with mixed identity. One of my friends was on it. Two of my yes. friends were on it, Fry yes. and Robert. Yes. Yes, exactly, exactly. And yeah, and, and so that was a weekly, a weekly column chatting to loads of different people with different, you know, mixes different backgrounds, different heritages. And through doing that, I kind of realized that there were so many recurring themes, like the same topics kept coming up again and again, regardless of what people's mixes were, what kind of backgrounds they had, they were so different, but, and yet the same themes kept coming up. And I was like, there is a, there is a universality. There is something there within the mixed experience that ties us together in a kind of sense of community, a sense of belonging. And it was also that belonging that need for belonging that kept coming up. It was something that I think people who do have mixed identities often feel as though they're lacking a group that fully represents who they are and can fully Mm. understand the complexities and nuances of having mixed heritage, maybe being the only person in your family who looks like you do, maybe being the only person in your family who experiences race in the specific way that you do and are racialized in, in that exact way. So it's quite a unique experience. But at the same time, the mixed ethnic category is the fastest growing racial category in the UK. So there's a lot of us and, mm. and you know, we incorporate such a wide breadth of different experiences. So there was a real need to kind of bring these experiences together, put them all in one place, just to really, the key aim was to like, show people that they're not alone in their experiences because with all the interviews that I did the thing that came out to me the most was people thought that they were the only ones who were feeling like this who were feeling this you know sense of identity challenges with identity challenges with belonging and feeling as though they were isolated in their experiences and I wanted to kind of bring all these people together show them that they're not alone and essentially create the book that I really needed to read when I was like a teenager Mm. or like in my early 20s and it didn't exist so yeah and the way that it's been received has been amazing because you know it's the kind of dream feedback you want as a writer in that people are feeling seen and feeling as though 
their stories are being told, feeling as though they can identify with what's being said in the book. And that's always what I want as a writer. I want to kind of create that sense of recognition because that's what I care about when I read something. So the things that move me when I read them are things that make me just do this like deep head nod where I'm like, yes, like, oh my God, I didn't realize somebody else felt like this or a writer has taken some half-baked thought that I didn't even know how to articulate and put it perfectly into words for me and I'm like yes that is exactly the experience that I'm trying to you know that I'm feeling so to put that into the world is like quite a powerful thing I think. Mm. We're going to talk about the book through your own personal experience of this in a second but a common trope that I used to hear from quite a lot of mixed heritage friends in my university in my adult years and this Mm. is only specifically by the way people who come from black and white parents Mm. is that they said quote unquote I was too white for the black people but I was too black for the white people Mm -hmm. just unpack this trope for listeners and also for me I think this comes a lot of the time down to class as well as it does to Mm. race that's a really interesting point yeah Um, and I think there's huge scope to talk about class in this discussion I think it's something that's massively overlooked when we're having these discussions about race generally and I think we need to do more of that and look at class and socioeconomic socioeconomic backgrounds as well as location as well like because I Mm -hmm. think you know people who have mixed heritage who grow up in London that's a much different experience to those who grow up in in the north or in Mm -hmm. rural areas Mm -hmm. um, in middle England so you can't really look at race in a vacuum you do have to consider location time class all of these different things they all work together to create a you know very specific set of circumstances that creates people's experiences so yeah that's a really important point that trope (laughs) is yeah, it's so common. And I think it's interesting because it's, uh, it, yeah, I think that people have a very different experience depending on all of those things that I just discussed. So it can happen that there is this sense of feeling like you're not enough of one, not enough of the other, or too much of one, too much of the other mm. when you are mixed. And it's a really hard one to unpack, really, because it's such a individual experience for people. And And what does white or black mean in that context? What behaviours are they assigning to them? Exactly. Well, exactly. So it's it's really kind of drawing on a huge amount of racial stereotypes and expectations of what you're supposed to act like if you're black, what you're supposed to act like if you're white. And this isn't unique to, to mixed people. I've heard, you know, a lot of black people or Asian people or whatever minority you happen to be talking about being called too white because of certain behaviors that they display and it's it's obviously really problematic because what does that mean you know if Mm. you just if you dig just even just a tiny bit deeper into that question you're then suddenly realizing that people are putting these huge amounts of problematic stereotypes onto you and and forcing them onto you And, and actually I think the key thing to to bring out of this trope is the fact that for mixed people and the many mixed people I spoke to for this book, it's very disempowering to be told what you are and what you are not over Mm -hmm. and over again. And I think that that is the thing that is most frustrating for mixed people in that, that power to self-identify, to make your own mind up as to where you fit, to find your own space within the world is so often taken away because people will say, you're not allowed to talk about this because you're not black enough, for example, or you're not allowed to be in this space, or why do you think you can exist in this space? Or, mm-hmm. you know, all the, there are so many different ways that that this manifests from, you know, very small microaggressions to, to much bigger overt kind of 
racism. Yeah, it's it's disempowering and yeah, just a really kind of limiting way to look at race as well that just takes people's power away from them, essentially. So we're going to talk about your personal experience in this side now. And the one example I want to bring out first is a family party story that you talk about in the book where yeah. it's on your mum's side. Your mum is white yeah. British and your dad is a British Caribbean background. So you and your sister, you get it from your dad, are both very tall. <laughs> and you received, in air quotes, Amazonian type comparisons from people that seemed mm. well-meaning, but made you feel quite uncomfortable at the same time. So mm. just tell the listeners about how that made you feel and how that played into your sense of belonging, not just in society, but in your own family in that particular story. Yeah, it's a funny story because at the time, it's so normalised. Everything that happened at that party, was it was nothing overtly traumatic or over the top like it didn't feel like this huge moment it was just an example of like the things that happen all the time so my sister and I as you said we're really tall we're both around the six foot mark um Dear God there's so <laughs> a, a five foot ten man being interviewed here it feels very uh self-conscious right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly and but so so we're pretty conspicuous particularly when we're with our white family or we're mm-hmm. in those spaces where we're the only non-white people and we're also really loud like we're just loud <laughs> people as well so we just you know we stick out for a number of reasons which is fine all my family are loud and you know this is this is just how we interact we never really feel any kind of way like we're often in spaces with our extended family on my mum's side where we'll be the only non-white people but Mm -hmm. it's not something we notice in the moment it's not something we're overtly conscious of it's not something that really impacts how we interact as a family it's just that's just the deal and always has been it's just what we know right so it's it's not a thing so it was my granddad's 70th birthday party in a church hall in this tiny village in middle England where he lives very different to you know the cities where we grew up and where we now live And, you know, there was a lot of elderly white people there who I guess don't see many people like me and my sister. Like we just, they don't have much exposure to diversity, to to different kinds of people. So we got a lot of comments, we got a lot of looks. All, like I say, well-meaning in that they were trying to compliment us and say, oh my gosh, you two are Amazonian and um, just like being... Face value is a compliment, isn't it? But it can be more problematic. (laughs) Well, exactly. It's like, you know, it's one of those where you're like, "Mm, you know, I'm going to give this, I'm going to give this old lady a pass because she's not, she's not, (laughs) she's not trying to be horrible, but I am going to talk about it later and be like, oh, that was a bit annoying that she said that. So that happened. But the worst thing that happened at this party was a woman was talking to my sister and I, and I was with my boyfriend who's white. Mm-hmm. And she turned to my boyfriend, Jared, and she said, so how do you know Brian? Brian's our granddad. Directly to Jared. And he, so he was like, oh, well, looked at me and was like, well, my girlfriend, um, mm-hmm. that's his The that's natural his answer. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> my girlfriend's his granddaughter. And the confusion on this woman's face, she just stared at me like what she just could not believe what she was hearing. She laughed. She like laughed out loud. She thought Jared was joking. She thought it was a joke. And then just like kind of awkwardly walked away because she didn't understand. She could not comprehend that my sister and I could be related to my granddad because we weren't white, I assume. Mm. So that was a really strange moment. And we all just kind of looked at each other and were like, what just happened? And it's such a disconcerting kind of thing just to not be believed, just to have someone be like, you couldn't possibly be the granddaughters and just to laugh at it to laugh at us essentially and walk away and we were like 
that was such a strange interaction. We just carried on. We just went and got a, a drink, didn't think about it. But then afterwards we would we were talking and I was like, that was really weird and just feels, I guess, upsetting to feel like you're not naturally just accepted as part of mm. the family, that you're seen as some anomaly, some different entity that doesn't fit. And I guess I never think about it, how it's perceived outside of the family group, because you don't think about it because it's like I said, this is just our normal reality. But then when somebody from the outside looks at us and points at me and my sister and they're like, who are they? Why are they here? They don't match. They shouldn't be on the family picture. It's a bit like jarring. So yeah, it's just a reminder, I guess, of that difference. And the fact that you know, and it has happened. It's happened with when I'm with my mum. You know, and when I, she's told us stories about when we were little, and she'd be out with me, like toddling along next to her, and my sister in a pram, and someone would, you know, would say to her, "Oh, whose whose children are those?" And she'd be like, "These are my babies." Like, that's, that's what none are you the, talking about? Of their business, mate. Well, <laughs> for one, none of yeah. your business. <laughs> Two, they're my children. Why would you not assume that people these are so babies nosy, man? Fuck it up. Yeah, like. literally. It's like, why would you Mind even ask your that business. question? Like, I know it's mad. It's mad. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's just a, it's an odd situation that you sometimes yeah. get reminded of, and you're like, oh yeah, we do look different, and for some mm. people that's a problem, you know. I just find that more odd because if even if you were surprised, surely the natural questions would be like asking questions about your dad and just be like, nice, yeah. I like, you know, about da da da. So yeah, and it's weird. People don't have to, don't have social skills. Um, <laughs> right, I want to move on to beauty now because that's another thing that you cover in the book, which I wanted mm. to talk about, and the idea of beauty expectations, beauty standards, and body image amongst people of mixed heritage particularly black women so just tell me more about this through a mental health lens and some of the issues you explored so there's a kind of thing with mixed people specifically mixed women where over the last 10 to 15 years this kind of strange the kardashian effect yeah kind the of slim the slim thick influence i would imagine yeah, right? yeah yeah but also this kind of focus on being ethnically ambiguous in air quotes mm. so there's this kind of idealization of people who are a little bit ethnic, but not too ethnic. So you're kind of, there's a bit, something a bit spicy, like maybe you've got a certain skin tone, you've got a certain kind of hair type, and that suddenly has become this kind of new ideal of beauty. And it's, it's a tricky one because I've seen it happen. I've well, seen the Kardashians are Armenian, aren't they? Background, so that's obviously something people would not naturally assume, and that gives them that ambiguous. You can't. People start to look at them. We go, oh, what? like you can't yeah. place them immediately. Well, exactly, can you? Yeah. exactly. And and I think the Kardashians, they 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 very much they heavily lean into that uh, mm. to put it mildly. So and you know and to put it less mildly, they do blackfish, as in they cherry pick elements of black beauty that work for them and use them even though they're not black and that has been hugely lucrative for them and for their brand and has shaped the face of what is beautiful what is deemed beautiful in in western society today but I've seen the change happen so like when I was a kid and a teenager I never saw models or people in in magazines or on tv really or celebrities that looked like me or who were mixed or who size zero culture wasn't it It was kate moss exactly yeah and even amy campbell was was, i mean she was black but she was thin she was you know she was yeah and also she was she was the only one she was was the only one literally (laughs) jordan dunn came along yeah (laughs) exactly and that was that was much later so because yeah she's a lot younger than me but like 
so yeah so there was there was uh Naomi Campbell but like every other model there, it was just a it was loads and loads and loads of really 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 skinny white women and even white blonde women that was kind mm-hmm. of the beauty ideal in mm. the like noughties when I was growing up and then all of a sudden it kind of shifted and you just started to see every single model was mixed and you just have to look on adverts today tv adverts there's so many mixed families and mixed women specifically and it's hard because at first you're like oh great suddenly I can see myself on posters and on billboards and on tv adverts and I'm like oh right so okay it's now a good thing to look like Mm -hmm. me all of the things that when I was a kid I wanted to like change like I desperately wanted straight hair you know I felt awkward about my black features and my body shape like having hips and thighs and all of that stuff that is typical for black women were the things that I didn't like about myself when I was growing up because I was told overtly by society that these things were not beautiful this was not a way that you're supposed to aspire to look like and then that all shifted so when I was in my like early to mid 20s I was suddenly like right okay this is changing people now seem to want to look like me which on the face of it I was like great this is good like the representation I can see myself on adverts this is really cool I never had this before but then you you dig a little deeper into what's actually going on there and you realize that that representation is so incredibly limited and as much as we're now seeing a lot of models and celebrities and people on tv adverts who are not white we're still not seeing black women we don't see dark-skinned black women there's a lot of light-skinned mixed-race women and it's so problematic because it plays into the same kind of narrative in that it's still telling you that there's a certain way to look that is more beautiful it's still it's still yeah yeah, Yeah. exactly and it's like it's this whole thing of okay we want people now to be ethically ambiguous but not too ethnically ambiguous you can't be too black um so you're you're still operating yeah Yeah, so you're still operating on this like sliding scale where whiteness is still the pinnacle and the closer you are to that the better so you've really got to take it with a pinch of salt so this kind of representation is not the be all and end all so that's kind of what I talk about in the book in terms of watching these beauty standards change and also you can't be too excited about it because it's a trend But like the difference is, say, you know, it's not like the 90s Rachel from Friends haircut that was a trend that everyone can just have. And then if that falls out of favour, that's not a big deal. But if that kind of aesthetic of being ethnically ambiguous and having a certain kind of body type is no longer a trend, what does that mean for the people who that is just their lives? I can't change that about myself. Black women can't Mm. change those things. And actually... I feel like we're seeing a slight slide back towards that size zero noughties culture at the moment in terms of beauty standards. And I've spoken to a number of black women, read a few articles actually about the kind of fear of going back to that and going back to a time when our bodies were seen as unattractive and not something you'd want to aspire to. And or it's desire, quite, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's quite scary to think that that can just flip because of what the marketing whims are. For people sitting and thinking about selling their products, that's just, okay, this is how we're going to market it this this month, this year, this is the trend at the moment. But for the people who are actually living that, people who are actually having their bodies, their real life bodies and faces picked apart and analysed in terms of how desirable they are. Yeah, like a, a scary prospect, really. 
I want to reflect now on this part of your journey before we go on to mental health. So the title mm-hmm. of the book is called Mixed Slash Other. So mm-hmm. do you view yourself as mixed slash other, a different <laughs> identifier or just Natalie? <laughs> I am Natalie. I'm many things. I'm many things, I think. I think it's... Um... That was a loaded question deliberately. <laughs> I know. I liked it. I liked it. It was good. Yeah. So I talk in the book about at the beginning about like identity and obviously the title of the book is a label. So this book is in many ways about labels and the labels we give ourselves and the ways in which we identify ourselves and the ways in which other people identify us for us. And like I said, one of the the big problems with being mixed is that people take that power away from you and give you a label or tell you that you can't have a label. Like that happens very frequently. So I think what I did in the book as well was I wanted to really allow people to to use whatever terminology they wanted to use I didn't want to enforce that on anybody I've also got a disclaimer at the beginning of the book that's like my get out of jail free card about the language that I use because I'm like language around race changes so frequently right so you know if you're saying mixed race if you're saying mixed heritage dual heritage multi-heritage whatever it is the language you choose to use in a few years that could be completely outdated like there's been so many iterations of mixed and how we describe that and every few years it changes and it becomes a different thing so the word I use at the moment is mixed I've tried to step away from using mixed race just because I'm trying to get away from this kind of essential thing that race is a because race is is social right it's not biological it's my very small rebellion pushing back against this idea of race being something essential that's essential to my identity to my being which you know it doesn't do much but words can be powerful so I think it is important to to choose the words you use carefully but also to not put too much stock into that because it changes I mean, I think we all have to be open to returning to the words that we use and reassessing and not be scared to be like, yeah, actually, now that I've learned more or now that society has moved on, those words don't really fit anymore. So the word I use at the moment is mixed when I talk about my own heritage and my own identity. But ask me again in five years and maybe maybe we'll have a better word for it. I don't think we've got the right words yet. I don't think we have the best language for race generally, particularly when it comes to mixed heritage stuff I think there can be better words for it which is probably why I ended up writing a whole book about Hmm. it because I was like let's just let's just use all the words (laughs) you spoke there about fitting in and a lot of this book the themes contained within it are a lot about you and your perception of how you fit in so do you feel like you fit in now um (laughs) I don't know I don't know I feel like yeah I feel like I fit in in a lot of spaces Say that loud. Say that. Say that more with more <laughs> convictions. Yeah. <laughs> say more convictions. Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah, I do. No, I fit in, but nobody fits in, do they? Nobody feels like. They and what fit are we in. fitting into? Exactly. Yes. Yes. Like I fit in in like my netball team. That's why I feel like I fit in the most. Are you comfortable? Probably. I think is the better question. Yeah. Uh, with my identity. Yeah, just with yourself, within yourself, in yourself. Yeah, I think I'm the most comfortable I've been ever probably I think since quitting my job weirdly I think it's forced me to no longer attach my identity to the organization that I work for and to no longer attach as much of my identity to my career and my job 
which is something I really wanted to disentangle myself from because it was causing me stress and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I think we're more than that. Like we're so much more than our labor we're so much more than what we do to make money it does become tricky when what you do to make money is also your passion and I'm very lucky to be able to do that and it is my passion and my vocation and I love writing and I will always be a writer but I feel like I'm now thinking of myself more as a writer and less as a person who writes as their job if that makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah 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 And as a final question before we move on, what did writing the book and what has this continued journalism journey taught you about yourself? Writing the book taught me, it taught me that, it taught me that I'm, I'm, (laughs) I'm better when I'm working on things that I really care about. And it taught me, it taught me that I can do more than I thought I could. Hmm. Because to finish the book alongside working full time during a pandemic was an achievement that I like, I hoped I could do, but I didn't, I wasn't certain that I could. So to to actually finish it, to have a book in the world that is going to be there now forever. It's getting close to two years since it came out now. And I'm still getting emails and messages from people who are just discovering it. And I'm like, that's, amazing because I think you release a book and you get on this whole like press publicity wheel and you're like okay well it has to do amazingly in the first three months and then and then it all kind of drops off and your your editors you know they're like they're on to the next thing and and you know they're like what's next what are you doing next and you're like okay that's done with but actually mixed other is out in the world now forever and people will recommend it to their friends and they will find it today tomorrow in a year in five years someone could stumble across it and find something within that book and I think that's just the most powerful thing so I love that about it and and I'm, I'm so proud of myself for getting it out in the world it's taught me also it taught me to to listen to to myself a lot more in terms of my creativity and my energy and my ability to produce good work because I think you've probably gathered from this conversation that I'm like quite intense like with my work and like my productivity and like my initial approach to writing the book was like right I'm gonna sit down and all day I am writing this book like eight hours and I'm gonna do eight (laughs) hours every day for the next week and then I'll hit my word target and then it'll be it'll be done I just like to tick things off I like to be like cool done next cool done next done it and I don't care how how long I've got to work or how hard that's gonna be I want to do it but this book did not work like that Creative projects do not work like that. It doesn't matter if you put in 16 hours in the day. If it's not happening, it's not happening. If the words are not in your brain, they're not going to come out onto the page. Your word count is not going to move. So I had a few torturous, I say a few, many, many torturous days where I was sitting at my laptop, willing myself to write words that were not coming. And I was like, I have to get these words out. And I, because I was so used to arbitrary working hours and this kind of idea that the longer you work, the better you're doing. I was just applying that to writing the book and it wasn't working. It was torture. It was hell. And I'd sit there and I wouldn't get the words out and then I'd beat myself up and I'd be like, I'm terrible. I can't do this. I'm, I can't write this book. It's going to be awful. I'm never going to finish it. And then <laughs> when I kind of released myself from that prison, I'd put myself in like of my own accord. 
it changed the whole thing. It changed the whole game. It changed my whole approach to writing. It changed my whole approach to work, I think, in that I'd sit down and I'd be like, is it coming? Half an hour. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not working today. And I'd stop and I'd go and I'd be like, right, I'm going to go do something else. I'm not going to torture myself, try and force myself to do something and then feel awful when it doesn't happen. And I'd go out and I'd go for a run or I'd go shopping or I'd go see my friends or whatever. And I'd be like, today, it wasn't happening. Let me try again tomorrow. And just allowing myself that space to like do it when it feels right was transformational in terms of the process. And there'd be some days where like I had an hour in the morning before work and (laughs) so cheesy, but like inspiration would strike (laughs) and I'd be like whizzing through. And all of a sudden I'd done more than I'd done on a day where I, where I told myself I have to do six or eight hours. So listening to how my brain works, how my body works has been a really transformational experience and has, has made me much more relaxed about my writing and it's made it much more enjoyable as well, which has to be the point, I think. We've talked about Natalie, the journalist, again. We're going to talk now about your mental health journey again. So unlike the previous podcast, instead of asking you the question I was going to ask, since we last spoke, Mm. who's Natalie we meet now? (laughs) The Natalie we meet now, I think, is a lot calmer, more focused, but is still very much on her journey Mm -hmm. in terms of embedding into this calmness. And trusting it. I feel like at the moment I don't quite trust the calm times and the times that feel good. I almost feel a bit afraid of them because I <laughs> I know that everything can change very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I also want to protect the good stuff. And I find that sometimes rather than being able to enjoy the calm, and be I'm present. a bit... Yes, yes, be present. Yes, exactly. That's yes. important. Mindfulness. I'm a bit like suspicious of it. I'm like, oh, wait, do I feel, am I having a, am I having a good week? Like, is this, <laughs> is this, is this going to last? And uh, Surely not. And then I start problem with extroverts. Yeah. Oh my God. And then I'm like, why? And then I'm like, oh, why do I feel good? Do I though? Do I feel good? Maybe I am a bit anxious. And then I start like looking for it almost. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's a strange, it's a strange predicament. Mm. <laughs> the main part of this mental health journey continued Nat we're going to talk about is and what you wanted to talk about I should say Mm. was the very tragic passing and death of your father Tony who died in August 2020 from cancer Mm. so firstly before we talk about all the difficult parts just tell me about the man he was and your relationship with him oh wow well there's not enough time on this podcast but we've got we've got a bit of time to be fair we've got a bit of time (laughs) he oh god dad uh what a man he like there are some people who just bring so much to your life and that was very much him like he was the most amazing dad that you could ever imagine but also like we were so close me and my sister we were very much friends like really good friends we just loved loved hanging out with each other like that was the key thing my favorite times were literally just chilling at his house listening to tunes, watching movies, chatting about everything. There was never anything off limits with him. We would talk about everything. We talked about our love lives. We talked about our problems with our friends, with our careers. And he was just, yeah, a really grounding kind of safe 
presence in our lives and made everything feel really secure in the world. He was like our safety net in every Mm. possible way from the practical things of like, right, if something goes horribly wrong, if I've run out of money or I'm like stranded at 3 a.m. somewhere, he is who I would call. He's not going to have a go at me. He's just going to sort it out. Like whatever it is, he'll sort it out and it'll be fine. Yeah. So that's who he was in our lives. A great friend, a fantastic safety net, a huge amount of support. Someone I like admired so much for what he achieved. He had no business being anywhere near as successful as he was given the upbringing he had. He grew up in institutions. He was in foster care for his whole life. And then he was in the RAF. He finished school with two O-levels to his name and then went on to have this unbelievable career in journalism because he was unbelievably talented and fiercely intelligent Mm. and wonderful to be around. Everyone loved him. So, of course, he was going to be successful, but he he could very easily not have been. Um, So that was down to him and his work. And held that past against himself, you know, be bitter or yeah. be, uh, yeah, and 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 would have ever had had every right to have been because of the pain that he went through, and he didn't. Exactly. And the fact that yeah. he was such a, as you say, a shining light to everyone around him is just a testament to the man he was. Exactly. He wanted yeah. very much for me and my sister to have the childhood that he never had. I think, and I think it's partly that that made him such an incredible dad. And we were, we were his priority always, always, always from the moment we were born even to, you know, to in our late 20s and 30s now, we were his focus all the time. Like we were kind of what he lived for, what his purpose was. Like he wanted to make sure we were okay. And, you know, mm. at the end, that was his key focus. Just and, he, and, and there was a great comfort for him in knowing that we were sorted, that we were set up, that we were fine, me and my sister. That was the one thing he cared about, you know. Mm. Are there any favourite sayings of his he's a journalist so you must have had a few ad libs or phrases or life mantras that he said back then that you hold close to you now oh that's a good question (laughs) he's got yeah I mean his his thing as a journalist was uh he was such a joker so he'd always be like if something happened to somebody or like they got themselves into some sticky situation his like mantra would always be like well well they knew the risks (laughs) 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 <laughs> just no matter what it was um he would just always say that and uh <laughs> it was funny and we were talking and it's honestly this is such dark dark humor but like we were talking about like what we wanted the plaque to be on that's that's on, numero on his, uno surely on his coffin when we were like talking at the funeral home and i just looked at my sister and i was like should we put he knew the risks <laughs> and we were like we can't we can't do that but it would have been hilarious and he would have liked that but we didn't because I was like no one else will get it and they'll just think it's <laughs> just weird but yeah he used to say that a lot he also used to say um like he'd, he'd be like oh well hey what do I know he'd like talk about something and that was just so it just really summed him up because he was so humble and so never ever put himself in the spotlight or wanted to you know muscle his way into conversations but at the same time he had so much to offer all the time in every kind of in every conversation so he'd say he'd he'd be talking about something incredibly powerful and have such incredible insight and then finish it off with but hey what do I know and I'd be like well (laughs) you know loads you know everything (laughs) you're a journalist dad come on (laughs) yeah exactly so yeah they're the the two things that I remember in terms of phrases yeah Uh, so much there was so much wisdom I got from him just more about how to live my life. This new kind of era of me working for myself and not 
giving too much of my time to my job is directly taken from his playbook because although he had this incredible career and, and obviously, you know, after he died, that was such a focus for everybody and what they talked about. They're like, he was this amazing journalist and he achieved this, this and this. But knowing him, I'm like, that was so low down on his list of priorities for his life. Like, And the news piece he... said that, didn't it? It said yeah, right at the end. Yes, yeah. exactly. And they, they, he loved, he did love his job and he was very, very good at it. But he was not a career man. That was kind of incidental. He happened to be good at it. It gave him a good life. He was able to, you know, have what he wanted because of his career but he was very much work to live not live to work and I think if he'd had the opportunity to work less he absolutely would have like Hmm. he would have been like absolutely like yes I don't want to do any more than I have to he wanted to spend time with his people he liked being out in nature he liked traveling he liked watching sport to him he really prioritized enjoyment and doing the things that he loved and I am not always very good at doing that and I prioritize like like achieving things and what everybody else thinks of me and my journey and I I know I've been guilty of doing that since I graduated and that's partly to do with my schooling and the kind of things that I was told make you a valuable person Mm. in the world so I'm trying to prize myself away from that and lean in more to kind of my dad's philosophy of work less have more fun because why the fuck not essentially Mm. (laughs) We've mentioned many times, but your dad obviously was a well-respected journalist, broadcaster, presenter in his own right. Mm. And now you are, many people would think, oh, he might have not forced you, but maybe been <laughs> a pushy dad or kind of made oh, you kind of go down yeah. this path. But just tell, give me the truth, because was it gentle encouragement or did he encourage that complete separation so you could achieve the dream yourself and not be under his shadow or legacy, so to speak? That's interesting. There was definitely there was definitely no pushiness at all. I think if anything, there was like a gentle discouragement because he was <laughs> he was quite he was quite jaded. He was quite jaded. He didn't really like he didn't really like news, if I'm being honest. Like he loved presenting and he loved talking to people and he loved finding stories, but like the kind of machine of creating cycle, news. Yes. Yeah. 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 Like he wasn't into that. He he no, he wasn't passionate about that. He didn't really he wasn't really into politics. He wasn't really into the kind of things that you would typically associate a broadcast journalist to care about. And he knew that like those newsrooms could be really brutal and a very intense places to work. And when I was at ITV National, I got the gig working in London and I was on the trainee scheme and I got the London gig because you could get, there were different trainee schemes working in all the different regions. And I got the London one and I was buzzing about it because that was like, that was the most coveted one, the one that people wanted to get. And I was like, I can't believe I got this. This is sick. And also I was in London. I wanted to stay in London and keep working here. So I was like buzzing. This is the ideal one. I told my dad about it and he was like, he was obviously like over the moon for me. And I think really, I think secretly really proud that I'd chosen to go into the job that he was doing because obviously it meant that I was looking up to him and wanting to follow Mm -hmm. in those footsteps. So he was proud of that, definitely. At the same time, he was like, you know, they're all horrible in that, (laughs) in that London newsroom. And he, and he's, he's much stronger words than that, let me say, and I'm not going to say the words that he said on this podcast, (laughs) but he was like, gave me a very strong warning about working there. And I was like, oh, Dad, you don't know. Like, I, I live in London. I, I'm really tough. I'll be able to take it. Like, you, you, I'll be absolutely fine. And then I got there and I was like, oh, he was absolutely right. Like, this is hellish and, and everyone's mad. It was an interesting approach that he had to journalism in that I think he liked 
that I went into the same industry as him, I think he wouldn't have cared either way if I'd done something completely different. My sister is a corporate queen. She works in insurance. She loves it for some reason. She's obsessed. Like she's she's really good at it. No shade. No shade <laughs> on this podcast. Oh my God. When she listens to this, yeah. she'll be laughing. So she loves insurance. She's amazing at it. She's going to earn all the money and like have this incredible life. And, and she's, she's brilliant at her job. And my dad loved that she did that. And he had all these questions for her. He was fascinated by this world that he knew nothing about, this kind of corporate space that he had never existed in and he was always asking her all these questions and and was so proud of her and talking about her all the time so I to be honest I think we could have done anything and he would have been absolutely buzzing for us and over the moon and, and super super proud and I think for me again it wasn't a conscious decision to follow in his footsteps I think unconsciously maybe because I grew up going to the BBC and going to ITV and I think I was always impressed by being in those spaces and I was like this is cool you, like, yeah is... you always are I was speaking from experience yeah, yeah of course you yeah are. <laughs> and I was like oh I was like this is pretty awesome and I knew I wanted to write and so my, my general my skills kind of lent itself to doing that but I never meant to do exactly what he did the trainee scheme came up and and I was like let me just let me just see mm. maybe I'll like it let me try it but yeah, it was never a conscious thing. But I'm, okay. but then when I did do it and we were both working in journalism at the same time, I did love that. I loved that we had that bond. I asked him so many questions. He helped me so much in the beginning in terms of, I was so nervous to like do interviews and to do stuff on camera. I was, I was terrified. And I'd ask my dad for tips. And, and the one thing that he told me that stuck with me forever in terms of interviewing people, I'd be like, go with this list of questions. Like my, you know, and I'd be like, right. And I wouldn't listen to the answer because I'd be so focused on what my next question was and he was like you have to listen just listen to the answer because what if they say something that you then want to go off and ask them about that he was like treat it like a conversation act like you're talking to me and that has been the one thing that really stuck with me and also in terms of broadcasting he said to practice in the mirror and he said it would be so <laughs> awkward but he said that's how you get better and that's how you learn to do things with your face or you, you figure out, oh God, why are my eyebrows moving so much? And or just things that you like or you don't like about what you do on camera. So yeah, he, t- he taught me a lot, which was amazing. I want to talk now about the build-up to the grief and losing your dad, if we can now, Nat. Mm-hmm. So he was diagnosed in November 2019 and you kept yeah. the diagnosis news private as a family, which you had every right to. Just mm-hmm. tell me how you felt when you were initially told and then how you approached his diagnosis as a family and the treatment and that process leading up to when he passed? So, yeah, you say you say we kept it private as a family. He kept it private to okay. himself right. initially. Oh, I see. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I think he, so he wanted, I think, as always, to protect me and my sister. So in November, he told me and my sister that he had a cyst and that he had to have an operation on his kidney. And I was like, oh, I was like, okay, assist, right, okay, well, that'll be fine. And I was like, okay, it's quite a big operation, so you need to, you know, all these things that you need to do, blah, blah, blah. The word cancer was not mentioned to to me or my sister. We didn't know that. And I was like, okay, so he's having an operation. Okay, so I took some time off work, because he, he lived on his own, and he was having quite a big operation. And I'd had shoulder surgery the year before, and I knew how much I needed help just to, like, eat and cook and get myself dressed and stuff and I was like well I don't want my dad to be on his own so I I took some time off and I went up to Bury to stay with him for a couple of days once he got out of the hospital so I could just I could do his shopping and make him some dinner and we could just hang out and watch movies and stuff and I'm so glad like those few days of just me and my dad 
in his house watching movies I was making him dinner we had the best chats and and like now I'm so grateful that I did that and that we had that time so I stayed with him for about a week and just basically looked after him and it was like the closest I felt to him because obviously I've lived in London for quite a long time now so I don't I I didn't get to see him as much as I, I would have liked to but during that trip I was just asking him about the surgery and I was like, so what has the doctor said? Like, do you need to have any follow-ups or like what's going to happen? And he was like, yeah, so blah, blah, blah. So the tumour. And I was like, tumour? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, what are you saying? He's like, yeah, so it was cancer. And I just burst into tears, like in that moment, just like, and I don't... And it was funny because at that point, we thought it was fine. We th- it was They got it out. But I just burst into tears at, at hearing that word. I think it was the shock of it. And I think it was knowing what that meant in terms mm. of the future. I think my mind instantly raced forward and was like, okay, cancer. I know how this can go of somebody pushing 60 He's, he's incredibly healthy, super sporty, all of that. But I was like, I know that doesn't matter because I've seen friends have cancer, it, go away, it comes back, go away, comes back. And it's really bad, but I think my brain was just like, this is what's going to get you. I think in that moment, that's what I thought. And I was like, I don't know if it's going to be soon or if it's going to be in 10 years. But I think, I was like, I think that's, this is what it's going to be. And I think it, I had a very clear thing him saying that word I was like this somehow I just knew that that was my whole life changing I don't know how I had that clarity in that moment but I really did like very clearly saw that were you almost grieving for him before he died in a way very much so very much so and it was but then it was all really quick after that so once we once I found out but we thought it was fine and and we thought they got it out and we were like cool right let's see I went back to London. Then it was then the pandemic hit and we were all in lockdown. And I remember I was uh, I was in Crouch End in London. I was queuing outside Tesco. Remember we had to queue outside, like there was this massive queue. And we all stood on the little little painted feet footsteps outside, keeping our distance. I was in this enormous queue for Tesco, but I'd committed to it and I was like, no, I've, I'd already been in this queue for what like 20 minutes. Time, mate, honestly. What am I, what I know when we think time. about it, I'm like, I can't believe that happened. But I did very recently and I was in this queue and I was like no I'm gonna wait I'm gonna keep queuing I need some food so I've got to queue get a phone call from my dad and immediately I hear his voice and I'm like what this is bad and he was like yeah it's uh it's not good news and they'd scanned and it was back they hadn't got it all out and it was really really aggressive and he was just like yeah so I'm gonna have to have more treatment blah 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 and I <laughs> abandoned the queue immediately started like kind of like half running home I remember it and I was like I was calling my boyfriend and I was like crying and again like on the face of it it wasn't the bad bad news at that point it was just like he needed more treatment but I really felt like it was and I think when I look back I'm like I think I knew from the beginning that this was gonna go bad I don't know why and my sister was very much the opposite and I think she was in denial for quite a lot of it and was a bit like oh I'm sure this will be fine this is probably going to be fine and I was very much like no I think I think he's gonna die like from the beginning and I don't know why I don't know why I felt that I just did so yeah so that happened and then so that was what that must have been 
March, April, if it was lockdown times. And God, it's it's all so quick. And then, and then he got sick and then he got sicker. And then I was like, okay, I need to come home now because I got a call and he'd said the doctors had, he said the doctor put his hand on my shoulder. And I was like, oh, and he was like, that's when I knew they can't do anything. Hmm. Um, so that's when I came home and yeah, and it was, it was all just really, really quick. It was really, really quick. And then he was, his care was quite disjointed because of COVID. So we were trying to help, but normally we'd have been at his bedside, but I was trying to like make sure he was getting the right care over the phone and like calling people because we weren't allowed in the hospital. Um, there was one time he was at the Christie, which is the cancer hospital in Manchester. And he just came outside and sat on the bench with me and my sister and my mom. And I think that was probably like the realest moment for all of us. And he just said, he just said, um, I'm, I'm going to miss you all so much. And that, oh, just, wow. <laughs> that just absolutely broke me into a million pieces because, oh, yeah, it was just like, the hardest thing to see that just the speed like I felt like I was just spinning the whole time I was like I can't even catch my breath like every time you get used to one kind of situation it would all change and it was getting worse and worse and and I felt like and the doctors were playing catch-up I was watching and I was like they don't know what to do they're chasing this there's no time to put a, pa- a plan in place because it was so aggressive all they could do was react to what was happening with his illness and it was so speedy and just incredibly aggressive and there was nothing anyone could have done to make it worse yeah. it was out of your control like no one could do anything yeah. completely and yeah. i think i'd never been in that situation luckily where i've had to see actually how little power doctors and medical professionals have i think you think well they'll know what to do and they don't they just don't often that you know they there's a lot they can do and the and but God, it's so much down to look and it's so much Mm. down to how your body responds and your specific illness and how that progresses. And if you're lucky, the doctors have a way to treat it and they're like, okay, you're responding well to the treatment. But if you're not, they don't have a magic answer. They don't have any more things they can try and they're just chasing and they're just reacting and they don't really have any answers. And I would go to them and I'd be like, what's happening? And they're like, oh, uh, yeah, we're not really sure. Like it doesn't seem to be responding. So maybe we'll try this. And I'm like, okay like I'm and I'm not a doctor so I'm like okay well I have to trust you and I do trust them and I think they did an amazing job but sometimes that doesn't matter it doesn't matter how amazing a job you do the thing is happening and that is it and you have no control so and as a as a control freak person it was hellish for me obviously it was it was hellish for all of us but I think it's really taught me about like I think that's really why I feel so determined to be happy and so determined to to live my life in the way I want to because it doesn't matter how many plans you make because they can just get completely fucked over in the blink of an eye anyway. Mm -hmm. So no matter how meticulously you plan your career and you dream about what you want to do and, and all the things you want to achieve, ultimately you've only got 
now because you don't know what's going to happen exactly exactly which is obviously a cliche but like all of these cliches become incredibly real Mm. when i'm like okay now i understand why all these cliches exist because oh they're all incredibly true when you're going through something like this you're like Mm. all right yeah that makes perfect sense now Um, i want to talk about the grieving process through the lens of this very powerful and beautiful article you wrote about your grief, Nat, in January 2021, mm. it was called Nothing Prepares You for Losing Someone, but I felt completely in the dark about the reality of grief. And I want to just mm. start by reading out a quote at the start of it. You say, this summer, I watched my dad die. My sister and I sat either side of him and clung desperately to his hands as he took his last breath. We told him that he was so loved, that we were so proud of him, and that it was okay for him to go. And then he went. So how did you feel in that moment and moments afterwards? Oh, um surreal it felt very surreal i i go back to that moment so many times not willfully i'm just back there often when i least want to be it's not really what i want to remember but i'm my brain just takes me back there anyway and i think it's god honestly it doesn't feel real that that even happens sometimes I literally have to shake myself and be like wait what happened did that happen did I did I actually see that happen that happened to me and to my sister and to my dad and it's funny because I think there's a there's a part of me that is like waiting to talk to my dad about it because I'm like this huge thing happened to him and I'm like I want to be like like, dad, what the fuck? What was that like? What? Mm. And and I'm I'm kind of thinking it's, there's some part of my brain that thinks that I will get to talk to him about it, which is you really probably are. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Mm. So I, it's it's a strange one because the one person I really want to talk to about that I can't. So in that moment, we had music playing. So we had a we had a um some songs playing, and the nurses at the hospice had come in and like tidied everywhere and like put candles everywhere and it smelled lovely and it was all really calm and serene so they obviously knew what was happening before we did and afterwards my sister and I just left the room and just like held on to each other and the nurses came in and and that was it and then I didn't go I didn't go back in the room because I was like well he's not there anymore and I knew that I could just you, you just know that I'm like right well that's he's gone now and weirdly in that moment afterwards the moment afterwards was just pure shock and like a dream I think but then in like probably the day afterwards like maybe the 24 hours post that was probably the calmest I felt in my grief first of all there was a relief there which is a hard thing to say but having seen somebody go through pain and distress and not be living and existing in a way that they would have wanted to ever, to not be able to do any of the things that made him happy, that made him who he was, that was almost more painful in that moment. And there were times when we wanted it to be over because it was so hard for him as well. And to watch him um, as well, I imagine, as well, being pain. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And I, yeah, I knew that he had had enough. 
So there was a relief. There was a relief because I was like, okay, the thing we've all been waiting for, the thing that has been making me, that has been breaking my heart for the past six months, this fear that's been hanging over my every waking second, it's happened. It's happened. The horrible, horrible, awful, unimaginable, devastating thing has happened. So now I don't have to worry about it happening. So that was in one way a relief. And secondly, yeah, there was a relief that I very much felt in those 24 hours afterwards that he was at peace and that he was with us still and would remain with us still. And I remember sitting very clearly, I remember sitting in my mum's garden. It was really hot. He died on the hottest day. It was like a heat wave. The next day I was sat outside and I remember like, just this like, it felt like I'd taken the first breath I'd taken in like six months, like that properly like filled my lungs. And I just looked up at the sky. I just felt him like somehow. I was like, I think that he is here, which is so weird because I'm I'm like not a spiritual person. I'm not a religious person, but I don't think you have to be to feel something like that. And I was like, oh, okay. I was like, maybe this is going to be okay. Maybe I'm going to be able to deal with this because I can still feel him and I know he's okay now. And I felt very much in that moment, I was like, he's okay now. I think he's okay now. And I knew it. I knew that he was. And I wish I'd been able to hold on to that, that kind of calm feeling that I'd had in those 24 hours after he died. But I don't know. And now looking back, I wonder if that was actually just a state of shock, that I was actually a little bit numb rather than calm, if I think mm. back to it, actually. Because then... I haven't ever found that kind of sense of certainty or sense of calm since, really. Or yet. Or yet. The, yeah. Yes, yet exactly. I do That's feel, right. no, I do have flashes of it. I do have flashes okay. of it now because obviously, you know, it's over two years on and it, grief inevitably, it doesn't stay as bad, obviously. You do just... It changes. It yeah. changes and, it, yeah. and it, it becomes easier to live with. It just does. But yeah, I, I think back to that 24 hours and I'm like, what was I feeling then? Like that was such a, that was such a specific moment that was encapsulated in that first day after he died. I think I've always been trying to get back to that because the following year, year and a half was like really, really hard, really Mm. painful, totally. Mm. I felt completely untethered. I felt like I didn't know where I was or what was going on. I felt like my whole world was, unrecognizable in a really really unsettling destabilizing way we spoke earlier about you almost grieving for him before he died and there's a point in the article where you write you would practice reading his eulogy at (laughs) his funeral were you doing that before he died and was this your mind's way of trying to prepare you for it but you know as you actually admit in yourself in the article you say there is no preparing yourself this feeling and culturally we don't have the language or the capability to help each other through grief either exactly that yeah and I was so I was doing that when he was sick which I, it's, it's I don't know if I'd advise you to have done that if it was me <laughs> just been too... it was a, it was a really bad thing to do it was awful yeah. I was torturing myself torturing myself but I think I thought I was I was like practicing it but mm. not practicing the eulogy I was practicing him being gone I was practicing for the sadness because I was so scared of losing him I was like okay well if I've if I practice, then maybe I'll maybe I'll kicking yeah, in even exactly, then. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right, right, let's tick this off the to-do list. Then I'll I've already yeah. already grieved. Fine, that's done. 
no I, I was like very yeah I thought I was like I need to know what it's going to feel like I need to know because I was so scared so I was like let's imagine imagine I'm at I'm at the funeral what does that feel like there's no imagining it you can't imagine it but I was trying to put myself in that situation to see if I could in some way generate that I don't know just 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 put myself in in the position I don't know why it's actually like a torturous thing to do to yourself really but I had to for some I can't really explain it more than that I just had to do it and yeah the reality was nothing like I ever could have imagined so yeah there's no point doing that but I I had to anyway and I'm sure Mm. I would do it again (laughs) when it comes to that process and how it's talked about and the language of grief mate one trope I find really unhelpful and this doesn't just apply actually to people who've died from cancer but to other things Mm. is when people in the public eye say that they've lost their battle or they leave behind ex-family members Mm. I know why this is harmful but just tell the listeners and educate them why this trope is harmful and how we need to change the language yeah it's just unhelpful isn't it like you know like I've discussed about about my dad's illness like there was nothing in him that failed. It wasn't his choice, like, yeah. <laughs> no, it, it's not, he wasn't not strong enough or he didn't not fight hard enough to beat the cancer. That's just not beat how it works. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. This is just isn't how, how it works. This isn't how illness works. This isn't how human bodies work. There's no morality. There's no, yeah, there's no beating, in air quotes, your illness through sheer will or because you you want to you want to stay alive more than somebody else does that's just not how it works and it's really unhelpful for the people who are ill it's unhelpful for their family it puts this unnecessary judgment onto people at a time when they're already incredibly vulnerable at a time when their families are already in pain they don't also need to feel as though they've lost lost some kind of battle that it's out of your hands if you survive or you don't i just i gen- having seen what my dad's been through and and you know and having seen other people go through illnesses you can't will yourself through it there's medicine and it works or it doesn't and your body recovers or it doesn't it's as simple as that there's no kind of judgment or yeah you shouldn't be putting judgment onto people in, in those times and yeah leaving behind thing that's that's an interesting one i hate well. that man Fuck yeah yeah i i hate that i hate that it's used a lot in suicide as well which is not helpful yeah i bet mm. i think that feels painful to me because i think when you're grieving, that's the key thing that I've been trying to convince myself that we haven't been left behind, that he is still with us in some way. And I think that's the thing that I've been desperately trying to find. Like, and I'm always looking for proof for like feelings or signs or anything to say, to show me that that connection is still there, that he is still with us, still watching, still looking out for us. And I think so many grieving families will feel like that. So to have it just casually said that oh yeah you've been left behind it's like that's actually your deepest fear as a griever and like the worst possible thing you could say yes I know I hate that as well that sucks Mm. you're very self-aware in this article now you write a lot about different grief tropes and one that I saw similarities with is it's written in a book by Simon Thomas who's a who's a journalist he writes about losing his wife to cancer Mm. and he says that he was getting frustrated at the support and the kind of lack of support over time that his friends were giving him. And his therapist yeah. said it's because people can't stare at your pain, that intense pain for so long. So just tell me about this experience that you had and the metaphorical ticking clock as well on grief that I've discussed with a lot of guests, but you had it as well and you felt that. Yeah, it's a funny one because 
people do have a, a limit to their empathy and their understanding. And I understand that that reference you just said there about about staring at, at your pain and people, it's uncomfortable for people. It's horrible. People don't want to see their mortality reflected at them. Because if you look at someone who's grieving, all you can do is put yourself in their position. It's human nature, isn't it? So if you see someone who's lost their dad, you're like, oh, I don't want to look at that. Like, it's almost like it's contagious, like it's catching. Yes. Like, if you, like if you look at it too long, like that's going to happen to you. And you don't want to be reminded of the fact that one day you will likely be in this position. It's going to touch all of us, obviously. So yeah, people do kind of drop off. And I think in grief, you find real connection and you're also disappointed by people. I've been surprised in a positive way and in a negative way with the people around me over the last two years. And but also also extend a lot of kindness to people who can't be what I need them to be. Yeah. As long as they do it in a nice was... way, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. A lot of people yeah. don't do it in a nice way. <laughs> yeah, like if you're just actually being a horrible person, like no, yeah. but like I, that's never really the thing. It's just often people aren't equipped to do it. No. And like, and the thing is, I know that I've been that person. I've been shit with my friends who've lost people. I know I have because and and I've realized this since losing my dad that you you actually can't know you can't know what somebody needs unless you've lost somebody and that is I think a great failing because I think if we had a societally a better conversation around it better education more openness more ability to talk about grief so that we could have the ability to understand it without having gone through it ourselves I think that's one of the things I'm most disappointed about in myself in that it took this for me to understand grief or to have mm. more empathy for people who are grieving. So I understand it. And I think that anybody who hasn't lost someone, I'm glad. I'm almost glad that they don't know. I'm like, mm. good. Like, hold on to that for as long as you can. If you've mm. made it to your 30s and you don't know what it feels like, fucking good for you. Like, that's great. Um, You're so intensely personal, yeah. isn't it? You're like, yeah. you know, they, they, they could know your dad or they might, if they're friends, they might have met him or, or had a decent relationship, but they'll never know yeah. him like you do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, and there are levels to it as well. So you know, people lose a colleague or or a friend or that, or you'll lose your dad. So it's, and there are different ways that that impacts your life and, and how you see the world. So mm. yeah, there are so many, and, and, and there's so many expectations on you and your grieving in terms of how it's supposed to manifest. Like, and I, and I feel that and I'm like, God, am I, am I responding in the right way? Am I, am I being sad enough? Am I being sad in the right way that people expect me to be sad? Should I be going out and laughing and having a fun time a week after my dad's died? Are people going to think that's weird? Am I allowed to do they that? They need to mind when... their business if they do, they, by the they way. They absolutely <laughs> need to mind their business. But yeah, a hundred percent. And like, when should you go back to work? Like, you know, some people want to go back to work immediately because they need the distraction. Other people are like, I physically can't go back to work. And yeah, that was, I think, to be honest, the re the reaction of my work to my grief has, has played a big part in me no longer having a job because <laughs> it was not great, mm. I would say. So yeah. Me and you, Nat, are both big Marvel fans. I've got my own opinions on the latest phase of content <laughs> that they put out. But uh -huh. there was a line that I remember you seeing on a show that we both watched called WandaVision, which for the yes. listeners who haven't watched it, it's about... Scarlet Witch, aka Wanda Maximoff, and Vision. Vision. Can I say spoiler alert? People have seen it, surely. 
You should have seen it. If you haven't, watch it because it's the best Well, show. he dies in Infinity War. I'm just going to say it as a spoiler, right? Okay. And if you haven't seen show... Infinity War, yeah. then what are you doing in, in yeah, your exactly. life? Yeah, like, exactly. Come on. So, so <laughs> the show is about her processing the grief. And Vision comes back. I won't go into the details of how. But he says, what is grief if not love persevering? And I thought that was a really powerful line. I remember there being sort of it being a polarizing line, but I found it quite important for me because I've gone through grief multiple times. What is your view on that line? How did it help you if it did? It helped me a lot. It was beautiful. Because first of all, I I love that show so yeah, much. I thought it was it. unbelievably good. I wish I wish I could like erase my memory and watch it again, <laughs> having not watched it. You know, one of those shows is mm, fantastic. Mm. And yeah, that line, I think it obviously got like memeified. It got Twitterified. So that kind of obviously Twitter just ruins everything, doesn't it? So like <laughs> Twitter like got their claws into it and kind of ruined it. And then people were debating it. And I was like, there's no debate here. This is just a fantastic bit of writing because it's, it just cuts through all of the bullshit. It cuts through to the essence of what that is. And I think it, it really helped me because it made my grief feel purposeful, which I needed it to, because it, at times it just feels like chaos. And it feels like, like I said, like an unmooring that you've just been tossed into the atmosphere and you're just spinning directionless. Whereas if you think of it as love and you think of it as all of that love that I have for my dad that I now can't give to him, that's what that is. That's what that feeling is. It helps me understand it. It helps me endure it. It helps me take it. If the pain of it is like intense, like, you know, anyone who's grieved for a close loved one will know that that pain, like, I didn't know that I could feel a pain like that beyond you know a physical injury do you know what I mean like an mm. internal pain that feels almost physical it's like a like a tearing apart from the inside so in order to like endure that if I can give it a name if I can say that it is my love it just helps me a lot like to to take it like I'm like okay yeah cool bring it on like absolutely mm. bring me the pain then if that's what it is like I can I can handle it because if it's if it's just pain if it's just sadness then that feels like like a bottomless pit and you're like mm. oh my how will I get through this but if you can think of it as love and so much of getting through grief for me has been about perspective and has been about how I view the pain that I'm going through because mm. I need to think of it. I need to find positives. Otherwise, I literally will just drown. Well, speaking of getting through this, obviously, your dad's death didn't just affect you. It affected your sister. It affected your mum. So how mm. have you supported each other and how have they supported you? Incredibly, essentially. Like, they are my women and I couldn't have got through this last few years without them. So, yeah, it's, it's a complicated one for my mum because my parents weren't together yes. and they, they got divorced when I was young I was like seven so it wasn't like she's lost her husband but at the same time we were such a unit the four of us and you know we did so much together we had Christmas day together every year even though they've been divorced for for many many years like he, that's very uncommon over. by the way <laughs> I know I know uh, we, and I felt so lucky that we had that so we had Christmas day together we went on holiday once together after they'd been divorced and you know we always we were always a family, even though our parents weren't together. So it was a complicated one for my mum, because although they weren't married, she did lose somebody who was 
incredibly important to her. Just and father of her children, you know. The like, father of her children, exactly, yeah. huge. And also, yeah. like, so in her life all the time, regardless of the fact they weren't together. So it's been hard for her, I think, to know where she fits in this. She's not the widow, you know, and it's very much been focused on me and my sister. So I think she's felt like her job is to support us. And we haven't always been able to support her either because our pain was so profound. We only had the energy to get ourselves through it, essentially. So I think she's had a lot of support from her friends who've been really good, which has been reassuring for me and my sister to know that she has people to talk to for her own grief, as well as supporting me and my sister all the time. But Becky, my sister, I just wrote about this actually the other day, but we're we're very different people we're very similar in some ways but fundamentally we're quite different we're best friends we're the closest you could be as sisters but we are different so our grief has manifested quite differently as well Mm. she's very open openly emotional person quite extreme with her emotions so she's very high or very low and she like kind of projects outwards so like she she's the life and soul or Mm -hmm she's the one who kind of sucks the energy out of the mm-hmm. room, which sounds really harsh, but she would she would admit that. And, and also the fact that she's the life and soul more than makes up for the times when she can be, you know, a bit harder work. But, and I'm, I guess, like I'm more measured than her. My emotions are more even, which there are positives and benefits and negatives to mm-hmm. both, I think. And I think we both have elements of our personalities that we're like, they complement each other and there are things that I want to be more like Becky for and I know there are things that she wants to be more like me for so and the ways that our grief has manifested has, has really correlated with those personalities in that she's really sunk into her sadness at times and like I said to you like I have really desperately needed to like cling on to some positives and like find mm-hmm. some light because that's been how I my survival technique essentially so that's been at times like we've been at odds with the way that we've responded to it which is which has been uh complicated but I'm sure you've learned though about each other we really have we've learned Mm. a lot about each other and learned how to have some like slightly trickier conversations and it's kind of taken us to a new level of intimacy in our relationship which I think is always what happens when you have difficult conversations with someone you've like unlocked a new level of like relationship because you're like okay now we can now we can talk about this that's cool like we didn't do that before so yeah she's my rock she's moved to London recently so she now lives like around the corner from me for the first time in like 10 years so (laughs) we're just hanging out all the time and it's fantastic really Mm. I'm conscious of time so I want to reflect now on this mental health journey Nat so you spoke earlier in the pod about wanting to speak to your dad so if he was listening I'm sure he is somewhere Tony what do you think you would say to him and what do you think he would say to you? Oh, oh my God, so much. I would say, I'd say, what was dying like? What was that like? Tell me. What the hell? How weird. How weird of you to just like do that? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Friend. What How a weird, weird thing you just to go do. Just God. So, yeah. so, so weird. I'd ask him, do you know what? I think if he'd asked me this a year and a half ago, I would have like been desperate to put like, I would have been like pleading to know that he's okay. I, I would have been like, please tell me you're okay. Just tell me you're okay, please. I think I've got past that in that I know that he is and I've made my peace with that and he is okay. So I don't need to know that from him anymore because I've decided that he is and I feel like I know that he is. I think I would tell him, I'd tell him I've gone freelance. I'd tell him I've quit my job. I'm not in a horrible newsroom anymore. I'm doing my own thing. I'd tell him I'm writing another book 
I'd tell him I've bought a house with my boyfriend. I'd just tell him stuff. I just want him, I'd just mm. be like, look what I'm doing. Look at my life. Because so much of what I realized after he died is that so much of what I do in my life <laughs> and have always done has been to show him. <laughs> has been to be like, dad, look, look, I did this. Dad, look at my house. Dad, look at my nice boyfriend. Dad, look, I, I've done this thing. And that's why I think I really struggled afterwards because I was like, what am I doing this for now then if I'm not trying to show off to my dad or like impress him? That's kind of all I wanted to do ever was to like impress my dad. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, now what do I do? So I think I'd tell him, I'd tell him about everything I've done and I'd tell him that we're, that we're fine and that we're fine because of him because of all the things that he taught us mm-hmm. and how he taught how he showed us how to live essentially yeah are you going to speak to him more now yeah I go through periods I go through periods of speaking to him a lot often in the shower like I don't know it's all like all washing up or something about yeah, it's like, not like the water. movies it's not like going to his gravestone and talking it's no. literally talking in your head yeah, yeah exactly I talk in my head and also I feel like sometimes I like get distracted like I'll start talking to him and then I'll realize that I'm now thinking about like what I have for dinner and then I'm like feel really bad and I'm like oh my god like oh shit sorry 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 and I'm like oh I can't even focus because it's a weird one and so yeah sometimes I talk out loud because that helps me to keep focus but it's a yeah it's a weird one talking to Mm. him but I do I do do it and as a final question Nat a what has this part of your mental health journey taught you about yourself and b if you could go back and talk to that Natalie who is contemplating whether to take the plunge to go freelance the Mm. Natalie who is possibly ill-advisedly performing her dad's eulogy before he died (laughs) or the Natalie who was in the throes of that intense grief for him Mm. what would you Mm. say to her knowing what you do now right so I've learned it's taught me that I'm not very good at expressing emotion and I want to be better at it I think it's taught me that I I'm also not very good at putting myself first yet yet (laughs) and I want to be better at that as well so it's yeah it's taught me it's taught me to prioritize those things it's taught me to prioritize my joy over other things and how important that is to try and find happiness where you can and to also trust it when you are feeling it as well and not question it or second guess it just to experience it and and have it while it because it can be fleeting so just to like appreciate those things which is again a very cliched thing to have learned from the death of a loved one but I do genuinely appreciate the small things a lot more than I used to I appreciate calm in my life after the chaos and stress of having somebody you love dying and being very unwell that's such a chaotic thing so to then just have a thing where everyone's okay like sometimes that's enough that's what I've learned. I'm like, wow, I'll, you know, I'll be stressing out about work or freelancing or whatever it is I'm stressing about that day. And then I'm like, mm, but everyone's okay. Currently, nobody's sick. Everyone's fine. I have a roof over my head. Just, so you've learned you, gratitude. Like, gratitude. Yeah, 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 yeah. About the basic, basic, simple things in my life, which is really nice. I really want to try and hang on to that. And what I would tell myself, oh, I would don't, tell don't my Don't do the eulogy yet. Uh, <laughs> I'd say, well, you're gonna get to do the eulogy, so maybe 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 save your energy for that one. Yeah. I would say I wouldn't say much because I don't think you can I can change anything. I would say you're gonna just have to feel it all. There's I would say there's no 
cheat. There's no get around. You have to go through it. There's no way around but through. That's it. So it's going to be hard. I would say to her, I'd say, strap in, babe. This is going to be rough. Like, wow. So get ready. And then afterwards, you're going to come out and you're going to you're going to have stronger relationships with your sister. You're going to have a stronger relationship with your mum. Your boyfriend is going to be unbelievable and you're going to love him in ways that you didn't think possible. So there will be good things on the other side of this, but I can't lie, it's going to be rough. That's Mm. what I'd say. But what do I know? But hey, what do I know? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) <laughs> and on that note, Natalie Morris, thank you so much for coming back on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me all about your story, mate. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a brilliant chat. Well, I think it's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Natalie for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for checking in with me and for being so open and honest about her grief and her beloved dad, Tony Morris. I'll put a link to where you can read the article Natalie wrote about losing her dad in full in the show notes as well as part one of her journey and where you can follow her on social media. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, please give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and help us out with the algorithms. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, you can do so at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or you can buy a Vent t-shirt or you can buy a ticket to Just Checking In Live number four, take two, on Saturday, April 15th, 2023, at the Victoria in Dalston. All of those links are on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Listener.